John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 772.jb4015, certificate number 47448, megafauna. You know, an interesting part of this endeavor, John, is that we don't actually know what size of listener we are recording for. That's true. They could be microscopic. They could be enormous. They could be, yeah, they could be giants. Because there has been a long history on planet Earth, uh, there's both traditions, basically. Uh, We sort of assume we're the right size for everything, but that's just regular old human anthrocentrism. Right. There have been times where all the mammals were really, really tiny. There have been times, there have been millions of years when all the mammals were just weirdly huge. Have you ever seen like a big, have you been close to a big animal? Like you're from Alaska. You ever stumbled on a moose or a bear or something? Well, the moose are everywhere. There, there used to be a, a bull moose and several cows that would sit in our front yard and eat my mom's trees all winter. And she would come out with a, like literally a broom. She would come out in curlers, slippers, and a broom. And try to shoo the moose away. They're a pest. They're like gophers up there. And she uh, was always unsuccessful because you cannot convince a moose to do a thing that the moose doesn't want to do. But I've seen big grizzlies on the hoof. But also I was in Niger a couple of years ago and was out and some giraffe came. And so I was lurking, not chasing, but trying to follow these giraffe. And they didn't want me that close to them. But they didn't want to gallop away or anything. So we, we played this little cat and mouse game where I got pretty close to them and they kind of stayed away. They were shy. Is the giraffe the mouse? In this case, the giraffe was the mouse the, because the giraffe, even though it's much bigger than me, is not a predator, a natural, uh, it's not a carnivore. And you consider yourself the predator of giraffes in this situation. If I had wanted to, I could have eaten those giraffes, yes. This explains that old saying, it was a real human and giraffe game. <laughs> And all those old MGM cartoons where a human chases a giraffe through a living room. If I'd been left out there, I would have figured out a way to sharpen a stick or 
pick the right size rock, and eventually I would have been able to take down a giraffe. Speaking of anthrocentrism, yeah. you just see a giant animal and think, yeah, I'll probably figure out how to kill that at That's some point. That's the human way, right? I mean, our whole history is about like, could I kill that? <laughs> I could kill that. <laughs> I feel like I have been left out of that evolutionary tree. I, I ran into a moose once in uh, just a, a hiking in some a canyon in the in the Rockies, and I just wasn't ready for it. Like nothing in me had evolved to know how to handle the situation. It was more like, uh, check this out. We got to take pictures of this. You know, yeah. I, had, I had all the wrong genetics for it. A moose is actually, I mean, anyone who's never seen a moose, they're very like a giraffe. They're on big stilty legs and they're much, much taller than you expect them to be. The antlers give you, you know, an extra couple feet. But, but I mean, if you stand next to a full grown bull moose, your head is at his shoulder. It's ginormous. Yeah, they're tall. But it was interesting to me that, uh, you know, as humans, we've evolved these kind of very quick reactions to some kinds of animals, but normally small ones, you know, like we have these, we have an instinctual revulsion of like something, anything that skitters, you know, right. Rats a spider, and, I a mean, rat. I, I hate to say this snake. To, to our future listeners, but probably their great ancestors, the, the small cockroach, the, the, um, the, what are your, what's your typical house cockroach called? It's a... Norwegian cockroach? No, it's a. Are you just making? It's a up German names? cockroach. That's what it is. German cockroach. You're just trying to think of what race you can safely disparage. <laughs> no, like, that's, that's a funny ethnicity to to that, make fun of here. That's the kind that your typical your typical house cockroach, I think, is a German cockroach. Yeah, it's true. We could be speaking to the descendants of these little tiny. Right. We animals. don't like skittering things. We don't like things that can go into holes at our feet or come out of holes. And I assume that that evolved for a reason. A lot of these things are poisonous or spread or vectors for diseases. Mm -hmm. I don't know how our biology figured that out, that um, stay away from rats because they could give you 10 different illnesses. I but mean, it's got to be the same mechanism that convinces me that I can kill a giraffe, even though I've only ever just met a giraffe for the first time. I feel like I'm more advanced than you. Like that impulse got bred out of me. Like all, <laughs> all of my smarter ancestors were killed with their various giraffe hunting plans. Uh, you know, all, all my dumber ancestors before they could reproduce. Right. And we're left with, uh, you just know, the berry, people like me who are like, I'm staying away from that giraffe. This, I've got a plan in my head, but what if it goes totally wrong? The grass gathering, uh, ancestors of Ken Jennings. You know, the, the, it's an open question what size our listeners are because uh, environmental pressures largely dictate what size uh, humans or mammals or animals inherit the earth. After the dinosaurs died, that was sort of the big end of the ecological niche. And so when they were all killed by the comet or whatever, what was left were these little tiny shrew-like mammals running around that were, I guess, small enough to still find sustainable food sources when everything died. And... Uh, you know, had had a niche to fill when dinosaurs were the were the big giraffes running around the plains. And they were able to survive because dinosaurs were cold-blooded animals, and once the sun was blotted out by the mega cloud, it was only the warm-blooded little mice that could su sustain themselves during the, the global winter, right? I think there is some truth to that. You know, there is some uh, still controversy over whether dinosaurs were warm-blooded, cold-blooded, or like some thing in the middle. Like apparently it's a spectrum. Really? Yeah, it's like it's like gender. You know, the dinosaur is on the he's like seventy he feels like he's seventy percent cold blooded, but where you know, in <laughs> back in college. Where are you I on the hot to cold blooded <laughs> gender or uh, uh, spectrum? Which where do you fit yourself? Which which uh, temperature pronoun do I use? Yeah, are you hot, you cold, you in the middle? 
if it's a, if it's temperament related, I am not a hot blooded Mediterranean type. Right. So maybe I'm more of the cool appraising Spock of the of the temperature spectrum. But do you, do you kick the blankets off your feet at night, or do you are you all, can you never be too warm? Uh, I actually like like to leave a window open at night, and I'm married to someone who wants it very warm at night. Of course, mm-hmm. in typical sitcom fashion. Sure. So I guess that would make me the hot blooded one. Is that right? Or the yeah, or the one that pref- I guess. Or who just knows? or just the guy. I'm not even sure what I'm asking. Like you know how this works, right? Like um, you know, men and women actually have different kind of basal body temperatures, hmm. and. That's why theoretically, you know, the wife keeps closing the window and the husband keeps opening it. I see. Uh, this is a men are from Mars, women are from Venus uh, side effect. Yes. Ex- and the women are, in fact, from Venus, the hottest planet, and they feel very chilly here on, on huh. Earth. Uh, I think that's, they say that that's actually why, um, you know, women often feel cold in the office because when kind of thermostat room temperature was being invented in corporate America in the 50s, it was all men wearing like three piece wool suits. So they were all like, eh, 67 feels pretty good to me. Right. You know, and here comes some woman in a little flimsy sweater over a I'm not sure a sundress. And I'm not sure whose fantasy this is now. And then <laughs> a second woman comes in. No. Uh, and so that's why, you know, for decades, women have been cold at the office just because it was all dudes in wool suits who were setting the thermostats back in the day. Right. Have we gone a little far afield from the size of animals? So um, my understanding is now the largest life form on Earth is an, an aspen, right? That a, an aspen forest, a forest of aspen trees is actually one organism. They're yeah, all connected like a, under like the ground. it's a colony with okay. one big root system, and it's the size of a state park or something. Right, or a, or right. a mushroom. Some competition, I, th- I think, exists between where they're an aspen colony or a giant mushroom is the largest thing on earth. To me, that's annoying to me. Those are not an organism. That's just a bunch of aspens. You might as well say like a bunch of virgins playing World of Warcraft are one guy or something, you know? But again, we could be speaking to a sentient aspen that that encompasses the entire world, one aspen. And by and by ticking him off, we've ticked off all the other billion aspens that share yeah. his or her or its hive mind. We've never considered that, that, that our audience is one organism. That there's just one single extant earth organism. Wouldn't it be great if there is just one organism on earth and it's listening to us? We have a hundred share. <laughs> Every other podcast is like zero again. Ah, yeah. it was listening. To, the, the Aspen was listening to Omnibus. <laughs> well, the Aspen can distribute uh, its podcast listing across whatever its billion different trees presumably. That's true. But if it, if it's just found tens of thousands of hours of this, you know, it's going to just right. churn through Omnibus before it gets to anything else. Hello, so. future Aspen or mushroom, depending on who wins. If you're in the only organism on earth, you are our most important client and we appreciate you. Well, so what qualifies as a megafauna? So today, you know, the biggest animal to ever live on earth, if we leave aside your uh, cheating fungi, right. is uh, the blue whale. Right. You know, giant, uh, you know, a heart the size of a car, arteries, you could actually swim through, although if you're in that situation, you're Ugh. probably not in very good shape. Anyway. Well, that's sort of a, that's again, a Jonah situation. I don't think he was in the, the animal's bloodstream. How would that have even worked? What was the movie where the people shrank down and were in a little spaceship and went through the bloodstream? Ah, Fantastic Voyage, right? Yes. It's based on an Asimov short story, Futurelings. It's a very, uh, 1970 maybe or late 60s sci-fi movie of, in which they predict that medicine will be done by little tiny submarines shrunk to microscopic scale and sent through your capillaries to shoot antibodies at uh, invaders. It made a big impact on me as a child. 
four men and a beautiful girl actually entering inside the human body, exploring an unknown universe, unknown dangers. They're tightening. I can't breathe. 24 seconds left. After that, you're in danger of attack. It's sheer suicide for all of us. I feel like it created a little subgenre. Because mm-hmm. in the 80s, there was some Martin Short, Dennis Quaid movie with the same gimmick. Right. Inner space. And then every kind of shrinky-dink superhero thing, like the Atom or Ant-Man, I think is always doing... There's always, always a scene where he has to do brain surgery or... Right, go in and er- eradicate the cancer. Yes. Or maybe punch his way out of a goon from inside or something Ugh. gross. Uh, so do we know for sure that the blue whale, our current blue whale on Earth in the 21st century is the largest animal to ever have lived on Earth? Yeah, there's no fossil evidence for anything bigger than a blue whale. Wow. Um, but on land, that is not true. On land, you know, we still have elephants and uh, giraffes, your your uh, imagined prey, mm-hmm. John's future victims, mm-hmm. endangered or not, he's coming after you. Um, but back then, and when I say back then, I mean from the end of the Eocene era, tens of millions of years ago, up until pretty recently, the end of the Ice Age, you know, uh, the Pleistocene would have ended, and that's just, I don't know, 10,000 years ago hmm. or so, mm-hmm. Earth was dominated by giant animals that often looked quite a bit like modern mammals, but just much smaller. When our, the, our, our mammals now are much smaller. Yes. Yes. Our, our, yeah, sorry. Uh, giant versions of animals we have today. You, like, know, you, you, could, you could see an armadillo the size of a Volkswagen, just walking, the size and shape of a Volkswagen Beetle with a domed roof just walking by. The Glyptodon. Huh. There were otters the size of wolves. Uh, am I wrong to kind of want that still? That sounds awesome. I know. We are missing out, right? Every time you see a, just a beaver, think, this beaver used to be my height. You know, beavers are descended from the Castoroides, which were six feet tall. Um, but they had little tiny brains, so they probably didn't build dams. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout i had an experience recently where i was uh because i grew up around beavers you know in the great northwest and um, I was down by the University of Washington, where there are some. There's a beaver colony that lives there, kind of in the, in the shadow of the sports stadium. And I took a friend from California, and she'd never seen a beaver. And we were there at night. It was like when the beavers are running around. And I said, you know, you're gonna love beavers. They're so cute. Never overhype the beavers. And she was like, beaver, you know, okay, sure. And I'm like, yeah, they're furry, cute little, you know, like. And I was, I guess, thinking that they were like otters seen a million beavers, but it just, I never, I never looked at them closely. So here this beaver pops up 
and she shrieks in horror because a beaver is hideous. It's a, a giant rat, basically. Giant rat with these enormous yellow teeth and this weird flat tail. It, I think the tail's a, actually the tail's a game changer to me. You know, if it had a, a long spaghetti-y rat tail, you'd be like, ah! Yeah, right. I mean, it was already pretty, I, I felt a little scalded having appreciated beavers all these years. I was, uh, I was a little bit chagrined to find that they're grotesque. That's cool that you're blaming your failure with this woman on the appearance of... You got to blame it on something. Couldn't be me. <laughs> but not the beaver, certainly. <laughs> we don't know if, uh, if Castoroides, these giant beavers from the Pleistocene, had big flat tails. Um, hmm. Soft tissue degrades so quickly. Tails are often the thing that scientists know about animals the least, interestingly. But teeth are what survives in mammals, and I guess those can tell you a lot. Teeth apparently are almost always proportionate to the overall size of the animal. So when teeth survive, scientists can be very sure what the size of the animal are. So we know a lot about a ton of these. And a lot of these had giant teeth. I mean, imagine saber-toothed cats, the kind you see with uh, Bam Bam on its back, riding on its back in, <laughs> in Flintstone, with these giant sabers, curved sabers coming out of its jaw so that it can't even close its mouth. Are there structural limits based on, like, bone and, and heart, uh, their capacities that limit the size of mammals? Well, there's something called the square cube law. Are you aware of this? Uh, you know, as... Uh, Am I ever? <laughs> boy, I could write a book. So height is two dimensions. You know, height is, uh, is just uh, is two dimensions. You know, as, as the size of a creature increases in two dimensions, its volume, its mass, increases in three. Mm -hmm. So what that means is as something gets taller linearly, it gets heavier exponentially. Okay. And that means there is some biomechanical limit, we assume, to how tall things can get and keep their structural integrity. I think this is usually brought up by nerds that are trying to fact check Godzilla or right. Optimus Prime or something nerds. like that. That could not be 50 feet tall. The square cube law means that, you know. But it seems like it would be something in fluid dynamics that at a certain point, a heart wouldn't, like the blood would not be able to be oxygenated I think you're right about that. Although nature has workarounds. Like I think in your, for example, in your brutal enemy, the giraffe, mm -hmm. um, and probably in the long neck dinosaurs as well. I think they know that there were kinds of valves in the, in the longer blood vessels that would, uh, you know, keep pushing uh, sure. blood up into a tall head, for example, and make sure that it didn't run out too fast. So, you know, there are adaptations that can be made to that. Uh, some other megafauna from the time. I guess my personal favorite is the megatherium, which lived in the southern part of the American continent for millions of years. What is that? It's a ground sloth bigger than an elephant. Whoa. So if you can imagine a tree sloth, but it's not climbing trees, it's probably digging a cave with its giant three feet claws. Well, so now here's the question, right? How does that animal, because I'm assuming that a giant tree sloth is a vegetarian animal. Yes. How do they consume enough biomatter to keep that kind of creature alive? Well, that's actually one theory as to what makes megafauna mega. Uh, you'll notice that carnivores seem very limited by size. You know, the, the biggest animals on earth today, hippos, elephants, giraffes, rhinos, they're all, they're all herbivores. Well, hippos, I have learned, will opportunistically eat critters. So they are more omnivorous than we gave them credit for. Right. But that's a bad move, not a survival technique, right? <laughs> that's like this native bear in this Tarzan movie is, uh, is going to fall in the water here. 
I think that uh, the polar bear is the biggest carnivore on Earth. Right. Um, notice to futurelings, we killed all the polar bears shortly after this transmission was made. It so hasn't happened yet, though. So th- You'll just have to imagine. It's still anything is possible, Dave. Here's my theory. Why don't we just move the polar bears to the Antarctic? Hey. The Arctic ice camp is shrinking in, well, our, in our era, futurelings, and it's really uh, it's deadly for the polar bears who rely on that area for finding food and raising young. Aside from the fact that the Antarctic is also shrinking. Right. But when the Antarctic shrinks, it just becomes a very cold continent, where as when the Arctic shrinks, you've got polar bears trapped on ice floes looking sad. But I think it may also be that the polar bears survive on a diet of large mammals that don't live in the Antarctic either. Like, are there there the same sort of seals and walruses down in the Antarctic? I don't think there are. Seals and walry are Walry? not a... It's not walry. <laughs> it's not a problem, I think. But do they eat like caribou and stuff? They probably do. There's, oh, sure. Yeah, there's no... There's nothing like that in the Antarctic. But there are penguins. So many penguins. What, can't they just switch to poultry? It's a little healthier for you? Penguin, the other white meat. Think about how many penguins a polar bear could eat in a day. Well, there's, that's not a problem. I would love to see that. There's millions of penguins down there. Because they can't run. I feel like this is another European starling where I feel like I'm solving a problem by moving all the polar bears to the Antarctic and they're just going to run wild. Right. Well, the only thing that's keeping the Antarctic together is is penguin guano or something that we're not considering. And it's true that, you know, uh, the Antarctic is not a permanent problem solver either. It's, it's melting as well, just mm. not as fast as the Arctic. What's the largest mammal predator that ever lived? Is there one bigger than the polar bear? I, fe- I think of all these megafauna, that's where I was trying to get to, none of the carnivores are bigger than a polar bear. And the reason for that is you cannot be an effective, brutal, murderous carnivore when you're the size of an elephant. You know, you can't sneak up on prey. You can't run faster than the thing you're chasing. Right. Um, hunting is just a nightmare when you're the size of an elephant. So nature kind of caps the, the size of a carnivore off it more or less a, a polar bear or a, a Kodiak bear. But if there have never been carnivores bigger than a polar bear, but there used to be aminals a- a- uh, as big as a, a tree sloth the size of an elephant, did that sloth have no natural predators? I think that's one thing that's driving them to be very big. Um, oh, just to escape predation. Right. Well, they can reach more food for one thing. You know, a giant sloth that's the size of an elephant gets up on its hind feet. If it's got a massive body mass to sustain... It can do that because it can reach, you know, crazy parts of a tree. It had these giant claws it would use for, you know, uh, pulling down fruit and bark and digging caves. Its claws are so big it had to walk on the sides of its feet because it couldn't actually. Wow. It it had these ungainly claws for walking on. Um, Thomas Jefferson was a Thomas fan. Jefferson was a fan of giant sloths? Thomas Jefferson was a was a Pleistocene giant sloth. <laughs> it's a little little known piece of presidential sloth trivia. Sloth cowboy. Futurelings, our third president, Thomas Jefferson, was a bit of a polymath. He was also an architect and invented like uh, the swivel chair or something, a uh, philosopher, natural scientist. And he was very interested in fossils that were being found in the new world. And in fact, he gave uh, an address in 1797 to a group of fellow scientists about some ground sloth fossils that had been discovered in, in Virginia or Tennessee. Which at the time, they, they weren't able to contextualize as we are today. That's the really interesting part. Extinction was not widely believed to be a thing until, it was not proven to be a thing until the year 1812. Really? When uh, the French scientist Georges Cuvier, studying specimens of a megafauna animal called the Irish elk, 
which is neither Irish nor an elk, by the way. It's a de- giant deer that lived all over Eurasia. Uh, re- had finally had enough of a skeleton to realize this is not a thing we have anymore. This thing must have fully died out. Mm-hmm. And this was a game changer. People could not believe that a whole species could die, partially because it was just hard for them to imagine. You know, obvi- by definition, you're never going to see proof of a, of a species that was extinct before you were born. But also for religious reasons. They could not believe that God would create the Irish elk only to have it somehow wiped out. What's the point of that? Right. So they had theological reasons to disbelieve in extinction. And this was right on the cusp of a great era of mass extinction. 1812 was just prior to a time when we started to see extinction happen right before our eyes. Right. Uh, humans you know, had enough of a reach that they could actually... And it surprised people. They were like, no, we'll just shoot all the passenger pigeons and buffalo we want. You know, there will be more. And, you know, more people should have listened to George Cuvier because dozens of species went extinct after we knew that that was a possibility. Right. The Irish elk is a very interesting piece of megafauna. It has the largest antlers ever found in nature, 12 feet tip to tip on these giant (laughs) antlers. It's like each, each, each of the sides, each antler is like the width of a king sized mattress. If you can imagine that. And there's tons of them because they fell into Irish peat bogs, which is why they're called the Irish elk. So we have some well-preserved specimens of them. Uh, At the time before Darwinian natural selection was well understood, Irish elk were held up as the example of a competing theory called orthogenesis which is just that animals do evolve, but not with natural selection. They have some trajectory. Like the Irish elk is just a deer that got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until something goes wrong. Like it gets so big that its antlers keep catching on trees and stuff. And that's how it dies. (laughs) It gets too big for itself, too big for its britches. Yeah, basically things evolve until it all goes wrong, which I guess is a pleasing idea. That does tend to mirror a lot of human relationships and... uh, and behaviors. But so how does that theory mate with the idea that there are no limits on the size of animals? They're, the only limits are that they get they get too big to live. Yeah, I think the limits are limits imposed by population. You know, uh, a carnivore that gets too big can no longer run fast enough to catch gazelles or sneak up on them. Right. And the bigger ones die. Going back to the giant sloth for a second. Are we going to say sloth? Is this a decision we've made? <laughs> I just love the opportunity to say sloth whenever I can. It's so pleasing. Sloth sounds more like the sin than the it animal. Is. That's absolutely like if true. you were like if you were if you were to say I'm a slothful man, that sounds all right. I That's guess. right. But le- did those coexist with modern humans? That's the interesting thing. A lot of these animals did coexist with hominids, you know, uh, uh, humans, humans to be at least. And but within 10,000 years, we're talking about modern humans. Oh, right? absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we know that saber-toothed cats ate humans because we have found human remains with two wounds in the bone that neatly match the gap between a saber-toothed tiger's tusks. But it is possible that a human rode a giant sloth. It is not impossible yeah, Megatheria lived until about 8,000 BC. And, you know, there are two schools of thought, essentially, on what happened to these megafauna, why we don't see them around anymore. And one is, uh, you know, if, if the size of animals is very climate-related, you know, if the first mammals were um, deer the size of rabbits and horses the size of dogs and so forth, you know, little cute ones. Yeah. And then climate change allowed them to to grow and fill larger ecological niches then maybe subsequent climate changes, you know, glaciation, 
or whatever it is, shrinks the animals again, and the, the ones that are too big to survive in the new world die out. But the other theory is human overkill. Right. Like we came on the scene and bam, no more megatheria, no more saber-toothed cats. Basically, everything cool is gone. Can you imagine the barbecue that would happen if you like killed a giant sloth? There'd be no way. They wouldn't have had the technology to drag it back to the village. They would have had to have butchered it and eaten it there. I wonder what the meat would taste like. Like, hmm. like when you said sloth, it really kind of, I, I was a little bit revolted because it seems like one of those weird mammals, like an anteater or a pangolin or something. Yeah. Is it, it going to taste like a monkey? Right. It's just barely a mammal. Like, what's it going to taste like? Bush I'm, meat. I'm sure all this meat was very gamey, probably. But, you know, early humans didn't care, man. And uh, They'd never had macaroni and cheese. They wouldn't have even known what it tasted like. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. How would you even kill something like a mammoth or a mastodon? We have found, you know, we have found ancient Siberian archaeological sites where people have built houses out of big curved Mammoth tusks or ma mastodon tusks? I guess I don't know the difference. Well, the you know there are lots of sites in North America where the uh, indigenous inhabitants would run buffalo off of cliffs. Uh, they're called buffalo jumps, and throughout Montana, Wyoming, uh, North Dakota, there are documented cliffs where they would routinely chase a whole herd of these animals and they would just run off the cliff and then they would harvest them from below. So you wouldn't even have to kill them. They'd, what, they'd just splat. They would just, I mean, I guess once they got into a stampede mentality, but there, so it might've been that they, you were, you'd be able to kill a, a, a giant mammal by some method other than just surrounding it with bows Poke, and arrows. Poking at it with spears. Yeah. Like you would see in a, in a children's book. But I imagine that I imagine the great hunters were ones that were able to. I mean, that's why I have such a, a tremendous instinct for giraffe murder, giraffeicide to, to murder any animal I see. It's that uh, that the great hunters were the ones that survived. They figured it out. Uh, mastodons, by the way, are different from mammoths and look less like modern. Elephants. Do you know how mastodons got their name, by the way? From the band? <laughs> yeah, they're named for the band. <laughs> they, uh, so Don is, I think, from... from Don, Don Mastodon? <laughs> Don was? Yeah, Don was produced the uh, Mastodon records. No, uh, so Don is from the Greek for tooth, like um, orthodontics or periodontist. Mm -hmm. But mast is the same root where we get mastitis and mastectomy. Mast means breast. 
So it's a breast tooth. A mastodon is a breast tooth. And I assume that's because of the gentle, pleasingly swooping curve of the mastodon's tusks. What? It was just named by an extremely horny paleontologist, I guess. That's crazy. Who saw a mastodon tusk and thought, that looks like a boob. It's the same guy that named the Grand Tetons. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you can you can tell that a lot of the a lot of the scientific frontier was being named by by breast men, basically. So what is the difference between a mastodon and a uh, giant hairy a, elephant? A woolly mammoth? A woolly mammoth. Mammoths and mastodons were contemporaries. They were both roaming the North American wilds at the same time. But uh, I think the main difference is their their jaws, their teeth. Um, mm-hmm. Mammoths have molars like elephants for, like elephants do for grinding up grasses. Mastodons are not really related to them. They, ha- they ate leaves and twigs, so they had choppers, actually. Um, not molars, but just, just choppers. Actual, more like actual teeth. Mammoths have the curved tusks. Oh, wait. Mastodons have straight tusks. Hmm. It seems like mammoths have the more breast-like tusks. Uh-huh. But they ended up losing out in the great breast naming uh, fad of the 19th century. Oh, uh, it's actually the grooves in the mastodon's teeth reminded paleontologists of nipples. Uh-huh. That's what it is. <laughs> so they called it the nipple tooth. Can you imagine? It look- was the tooth itself that looked like a breast. Can you imagine looking at some extinct tusk of some long dead creature and like elbowing the guy next to him being like, ah, its teeth look like nipples. Well, I, I, I'm just now thinking about being a member of like a 1950s, like Brooklyn gang and having your nickname be nipple tooth. Hey, nipple tooth. Hey, hey. I don't think nipple tooth <laughs> wants to talk about that incident no, he anymore. Does. No, he does not. <laughs> Quit calling me nipple tooth. Hey, nipple tooth. Thomas Jefferson, also a fan of the Mastodon, by the way, kept kept a collection of their bones in the White House. Really? Yeah. He loved all the megafauna, apparently. And so they were completely different species. A Mastodon and a Mammoth could not mate with one another. No, I don't think so. They're not particularly closely related at all. But we think of them as both just being big hairy elephants. That's just anthrocentrism again, man. All these animals uh, in the past, they were probably the same... Uh, you know, I was looking at pictures of a Paraceratherium, which is probably the biggest uh, mammal ever to walk the earth. Imagine a big hornless rhino the size of a giraffe, <gasps> like the height of a giraffe. Can you imagine that? It's a rhino, but it's as big, you know, its head is where a giraffe's head is. Wow. And uh, then I was looking at another similar, uh, similarly named creature, the Elasmotherium which is a, also a rhino-like, giant rhino-like thing, 30 tons, but it had a six-foot horn. Like, a, uh-huh. its horn is as tall as you or I. Uh-huh. And, uh, you're, you're being pretty generous to your height there. <laughs> uh, maybe some of them had a horn that was 5'10 and a half. We don't know. <laughs> and I assumed, oh, well, these things were cousins. No, you know, they, they lived millions of years apart. But we just tend to compress the past. I love these giant like. rhinos. I'm really jealous of living in a time when the world was full of such magnificent creatures. But I can't quite square that with the fact that right now the largest mammal to ever live on the earth is extant. The, but, the but blue we don't whale. get to hang out with it. And you know, it's got its own little world. Down the there. largest predator in history, the, the polar bear still lives. So we're actually living in kind of a, kind of the peak moment. We just don't have all these like sloths and rhinos filling up the middle area. And it was probably our fault. What do you think it did to, uh, what do you think it does to human conception? If you're just constantly surrounded by, I mean, when we're surrounded, when we see an otter, it's tiny. Do you think it would change your thought process if every time you saw an otter, it was as big as a wolf 
And every time you saw a sloth that was as big as an elephant, I mean, you really wouldn't imagine yourself master of the world, would you? Well, no, except if you could kill them <laughs> and, it, and they weren't trying to kill you. And apparently you could. They were big, gentle herbivores. As soon as humans figured out arrowheads and whatnot, it, it was game over for these things. Like horses and cows are much bigger than we are, but we're not. I mean, I suppose we're intimidated. Well, that's a perfect example. When you get out into a field of cows... If you're not used to being around cows, it's pretty intimidating. You know they're not going to do anything to you, but they're big. That's how you know cow tipping is fake. Cow tipping is totally fake. How could you ever tip over? Like, that's something someone says who has never actually seen a cow. The second you're standing next to a cow, you're like, oh, right, cow tipping is fake. This, <laughs> this, thing's, this thing's enormous. The, uh, one time I was walking through a field, I hopped over a fence, and it was a field of sheep. And I, a bit, it was in England, you know, and there are just sheep everywhere. And sure. I thought like, oh, I'm take, I'm going cross country. I'm going to hop through this field. And I jumped over the fence and started walking. And the sheep didn't really scatter. They were fairly confident sheep, I guess. They didn't see what a predator I was. They couldn't see into my eyes. Uh, but about halfway across this field, surrounded by these sheep, I got a little bit freaked out because they're just so, even though you know a sheep is like not, even together as a group, they're not going to do anything. But you're just surrounded by that many living things that are as big as they are. Some, it, some little part of your brain is like, what if they have a plan? Right. You know they don't, but what if they do? What if they just all decided to converge upon me? Like, <laughs> rally to me! Uh, and and you just you end up being buried under them or something. It's, a, it's what a, pretty intimidating. What a comfortable way to die that would be. Aww. There is some movement to rewilding the Americas in particular. Jurassic Park style. Right. I mean, we're not going to find glyptodon DNA or giant ground sloth DNA in a mosquito. Um, but is there DNA from these things in, I mean, the, because they died so recently. It, right. Well, that's the problem with dinosaurs. Jurassic Park could never happen as far as we know, because DNA has a pretty short half-life. You know, uh, there would be, you know, uh, less than, you know, a tiny fraction of a molecule left by the time that, uh, Sir Richard Attenborough found his mosquito dinosaur blood. Sure, things fall apart. That's scientific. But 10,000 years ago is not that much. And Russian scientists have found like mammoths and mastodons frozen in ice that are in pretty good shape. And they are trying to extract DNA. Like a lot of these things are in such good shape that you can tell what it was eating hmm. before it died. Mm -hmm. You know, the grass is still in the stomach. And there are attempts to bring back mammoths and mastodons. What is your feeling about rewilding? Well, when people talk about rewilding the American West, what they're often trying to do is bring in species that we currently have, but that more resemble what used to live here. You know, like before we killed out, there were North American lions, you know, before we killed off all the lions. So let's bring some lions in and, uh, and release some African lions in Yellowstone. Or there used to be camels in the American West. Let's bring over some Bactrian camels from Asia and put them back in the ecosystem and see if it does better. Because we have seen that, you know, reintroducing wolves, for example, um, to Yellowstone and other wild places has been a big success in controlling, uh, you know, elk populations. It for infuriates example. ranchers that vote for uh, very, very conservative local aldermen. It's certainly a sign of the decline of influence of that part of society, though, except in a regional level, you know, like right. back when we were an agrarian society being like, hey, let's have more wolves in the West, you know, no, nobody would have gone for that. And now that that's not really who speaks for our culture anymore, suddenly it's like, yeah, yeah, where did all the wolves go? Where did all the Bactrian camels go? Uh, I just hate every day when I'm driving through the West and there's not a bunch of camels knocking on my car window. I am 100% in favor of that kind of intervention 
lions, uh, and, lions and camels appearing yeah, on the prairies. Reintroducing giant aminals to the world because I feel like we've already, we're, we're, our, our dirty little fingerprints are already over so much. Like w- there's no pretending really that there is a wild anymore. And why not? try and gum up some kind of more interesting wild than what we've left. Why not try everything at this point, right? Yeah. There is some thinking that there would be benefits. You know, it would eat, it would eat weeds and the, na- you know, natural grasses that have suffered without those, or, you know, without the camels or whatever would come back. What about giraffes? Could we introduce giraffes to the prairie? I don't think there was anything that much like a giraffe on the American prairies, but, uh, you know, I know you've got to have a hobby, John, you know, you're, you're tired of flying all the way to Niger when you when you've got the bloodlust rising. The thing is, it ended up I felt less like a like a giraffe predator and more like a giraffe whisperer, because I was there and I was like, "It's okay, it's okay, you guys. Hey, shh, shh." I wanted to get close to them, not to kill them, but to just commune with them because they're fantastic. You wanted to be a giraffe, basically. I wanted to be. I wanted to ride a giraffe. <laughs> I mean, I'm a human being, right? I didn't. I there's no. I didn't want to sit in. And like share their eucalyptus meal. I wanted to domesticate them. I wanted to like be acacia, by the way, not eucalyptus. Acacia. You're thinking of koalas. But they they move so interestingly, and so they're you know for a big animal they can move very fast and they can change direction. Well, their shoulder blades are not in a place you could ride. So uh, right, right. You'd have to be back riding on their hips, and that would be uncomfortable for both. Of you. Or invent some kind of weird saddle, I guess. Like a neck saddle. Yeah. Yeah. You know, these, a lot of these giant creatures did live until surprisingly recently. You know, I think we've talked about this uh, on the recordings before. There were auroxes wandering the, the forests of Poland when the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock, for example. You know, these, really? these giant, yeah, as late as the 17th century, giant cattle. And there were little islands where mammoths survived also until the 17th century. There's a thing called um, island gigantism, where living on an island actually helps produce larger than usual things, you know, sure. and not just mammals, you know, big tortoises in the Galapagos, I guess New Caledonia had 66 pound chickens until, until Westerners or, you know, the first Islanders killed them. What about Madagascar? Yeah, exactly. Same thing in Madagascar. Uh, maybe the bugs, Madagascar cockroaches. Is uh-huh. that how they got so big? Giant bugs. Again, offensive to our listeners. I do feel like, well, where did the dodo bird live? Dodo bird lived on Mauritius and that was the same thing. That was a, a, a bird that um, had no predators. And the advantage of smallness is hiding from predators. So once there's no predators, you just get as big as you, as your environment will allow. Did had no natural defenses. So as soon as the Portuguese and Dutch started shooting at, shooting at them, that was game over. Um, it just makes them hardier to be bigger. And there's on these islands, territory is limited. And what you need is the ability to defend your territory against others of your species. So it becomes an arms race where the dodo or the chicken or whatever it is gets gets very big. And so like Cuba had giant ground sloths as late as you think I'm going to say something awesome, like 1801. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be a little disappointing. It's like 2000 BC. Oh, but still, you know, they're building pyramids in Egypt and there's still giant ground sloths walking around Cuba and, and Hispaniola. Oh, wow. And that makes it almost more maddening to me. We just missed it. Yeah. We were so close. If I'd been 300 years older and raised in Poland, it would have been a miserable, cold lifestyle but maybe I would have seen an aurochs. And that concludes Megafauna. Entry 772.jb4015. Certificate number 47448 in the omnibus. In the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, futurelings, 
Tweets are archived at at Omnibus Project. Our handles were at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. I also maintained an Instagram account under the same name. Our address for email, which is garbage, and my computer doesn't even get email anymore. That's got to be hard. It's kind of like when, when computers stopped having CD-ROM. <laughs> they also stopped getting email. Uh, but our email address is slash was omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. Listeners, uh, we don't know anything about you. We don't know your size, even. We don't know what climate effects in the future will make you little tiny burrowing shrew or insectoid things or perhaps giant clawed uh, uh, ground sloths pulling pendulous avocados and papayas off of uh, future trees. We certainly don't know how long our civilization survived because we speak to you from the past. We hope and pray that the cataclysm we fear and that has motivated us to make these recordings may never come to pass. But if the worst does come soon, this very recording, like every recording we make, may be our final word. But we hope that Divine Providence will allow us to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. Omnibus.